Hello and welcome back to the Next Stage podcast by Web Summit. My name is Luke and today we're taking you inside the minds of business and cultural leaders from around the globe. It's Tuesday, so we're looking at some of the best and brightest minds that CollisionConf has to offer. So sit back, relax and listen in. We'll be hearing from leading minds and industry giants from all over the planet. Hi, um, and welcome to the session. Welcome, Chelsea. Uh, I can't wait to have a chance to ask you some questions again. Um, you know, it feels like the U.S. COVID-19 vaccination campaign is hitting or is just about to hit a critical juncture, the point where the people who've been really eager to get vaccine have been vaccinated or are in the process of getting vaccinated. And at that point, we're going to start to get to see what portion of the population is reluctant or unwilling to, to get vaccinated against COVID. As we head towards this inflection point where supply finally starts to outstrip demand, what are your concerns? Well, Helen, it's always uh, so good to be in conversation with you. And I want to thank uh, Collision for prioritizing this uh, conversation. And I you share your concern that we are you know, very close to kind of moving from um, a, a vaccine and vaccination dynamic that has been um, supply constrained to one that will be kind of demand constrained. And yet I don't want to lose um, still, I think, the the need to continue to meet people very much kind of where they are. You know, I'm sitting here in New York City and you know, thankfully now we have a much more robust effort to uh, vaccinate people who are homebound. Um, admittedly, because of uh, a state Supreme Court order, um, we've had to um, accelerate and expand our efforts to vaccinate people who are incarcerated, um, because that was not an area, unfortunately, um, of prioritization from our governor, despite uh, the high risk uh, that people who are incarcerated in congregate settings um, have faced uh, from COVID over the last 14 months and continue to face. And so, you know, we are, I think, um, doing more to reach people where they are, and we need to kind of continue to not lose sight of, of that work still really needing to be a priority. And yet, you know, I know this conversation, um, you know, will we'll be shared a little bit after we're having it, but, you know, we are now really starting to, you know, hear stories, kind of hear anecdotal evidence of, of vaccine slots now being filled, you know, really all around the country. And so, you know, to me, it says, you know, we need to be doing everything we can now to build demand um, and to really work with, you know, people who are trusted kind of in the communities where there hasn't been strong demand yet. So if we think about white evangelical Christian communities, you know, working um, sometimes with unlikely allies like Franklin Graham, who has been very vocal about kind of why he thinks it is his, his moral, his Christian duty to be vaccinated and why he's urging you know, his, his friends, kind of his fellow parishioners to, to do the same. You know, we have to really um, continue to reach people where they are, not only kind of to kind of get the shots in the arms from a distribution perspective, but really from an information and an empowering perspective so that people want to be getting those shots in their arms. I just think we have a lot of work to do that we haven't spent enough time focusing on, but I hope that we're starting um, to really kind of get down to the nitty gritty of doing that work um, across the country. 
you know, the last time we spoke, um, you were bemoaning the fact that not enough work had been done. The, the, the groundwork hadn't been laid to sort of do the outreach to the, the population, both broadly and within in specific sectors, to try to get people to, to agree to be vaccinated. Um, some advertising campaigns have started, and certainly there's a, you know, if you're on social media, you know, you can see people... Um, urging, you know, saying I've gotten vaccinated and urging other people to, to get vaccinated. How do you feel like that work is going? I mean, does it still need further ramping up? Well, certainly, Helen, you know, you and I spoke a few months ago, and I really wish that kind of we were doing then what we are doing now. So, you know, now we do have some broad-based um, kind of public education and awareness campaigns, you know, really rooted in um in guidance from the CDC, um, also in kind of state and local public health authorities who are running, you know, old-fashioned billboard campaigns as well as social media campaigns who are working often with local um, media partners, kind of on on radio and, and television. Um, and certainly, I wish that this had started uh, months ago. I still think we need to be doing even more of what we're doing, um, and we need to be kind of you. Know, Really, again, I know I'm belaboring this point, but meeting people where they are. I mean, we at the Clinton Foundation just launched, you know, in partnership with the Religious News Service, a toolkit that we hope will help religious leaders, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, and other religious leaders to answer questions that their um, congregates and communities are having about the safety of the vaccine, about the cost of the vaccine, about whether or not any fetal tissue was used in the development of the vaccine. It wasn't. Um, really helping uh, ameliorate um, a range of questions that we know, you know, are now an impediment to people signing up, even if there are available and easy to access vaccine slots in their communities. So, you know, I think, Helen, the answer to your question is we are doing now what I wish we had started doing months ago, admittedly. I do think it's really important to call out and to recognize um, places, though, where that public education uh, infrastructure has been really robust. I think about the Navajo Nation, which has had just extraordinary distribution capabilities, but also had really kind of, you know, family to family, house to house efforts to educate people about um, what the vaccines are, what they aren't, kind of how they were tested, why we know they're safe. Um, and we just have seen, you know, extraordinary, you know, uptake uh, in the Navajo Nation across Navajo communities um, really because the leaders in those communities recognized from the beginning that this was always going to be both a supply uh, and a demand uh, challenge and that those ideally needed to be you know, uh, tackled uh, congruently and, and coherently. So I'm heartened by what we're seeing. I just think we need to keep doing more of it. And then also, I think we have to continue to pressure the social media platforms to take down vaccine misinformation. I mean, the Center for Countering um, digital hate, you know, published a recent report that said, you know, more than two thirds of the vaccine misinformation content is generated by a dozen accounts across you know, Facebook, Instagram, you know, Twitter, WhatsApp, and other platforms. Um, so I think we have to do a better job of kind of getting, you know, good science-based information from trusted messengers into people's hands kind of into their heads, into their hearts. And we also need to remove the pollution of, of misinformation that I do think continues to be quite destructive. I, I have some questions for you on that very topic. As, as a sort of a segue, I wanted to mention, you know, earlier this week, one of my colleagues had a story about how 
information campaigns aren't really aimed at Gen Z, that people in that generation don't really feel like the information they're getting is is answering their questions about vaccines. And, and you know, polling suggests that there's a fair segment of that population that doesn't intend to get vaccinated, which is especially worrying now when you see sort of the rise in cases amongst young people. Um, how does public health break through to that group? Well, I think that um, we know Gen Z consumes information differently, you know, um, kind of through different media and a different cadence than even um, millennials do. Um, and so I think that we need to be you know, working with kind of those of us kind of with our public health hats on, Helen, kind of in uh, in humility and urgency, you know, with with organizations and people who are really effective communicators to Gen Z. So whether that you know, are social media influencers or whether those are kind of new digital media firms, you know, I do think that we have to, again, continue to meet people where they are, including in virtual space. I think that's even more important now because of how separate and distant we all have been over the last 14 months from one another. Um, and I think we also have to equip uh, parents, you know, who have kids older than my kids um, with kind of real uh, tools and strategies of how to talk to their kids in a way that isn't hectoring or hopefully isn't patronizing, but is hopefully kind of helpful and informative and action oriented um, so that it's not just like, oh God, my mom is talking to me about this, like oh, this vaccine, why do I have to get it? But oh, like, oh, this is why my mom thinks that I should like sign up for my COVID vaccine. Um, so I think there's a lot that we have to do to really help um, families have productive conversations about um, about the COVID vaccines uh, and hopefully vaccination more holistically. And I think we have to just do a, a much better job than we've done so far in reaching out to Gen Z. Because also, Helen, like I'm sure you've seen the um, the statistics too, where like pretty significant numbers of Gen Z. Um, young people in our country say like nobody's told them anything about the vaccine, right? So not only are they not terribly interested in getting vaccinated, you know, for some of them at least, some of them don't know anything about the vaccine because those conversations ha haven't been happening in the places where they're spending time, you know, with their friends, whether that's on Discord or TikTok or kind of anywhere else. So I think the onus is on us. Um, to meet young people where they are and also really to help parents um, have these conversations with their kids. You mentioned a few minutes ago the pollution on the social media sites and, and you know, this story that my colleague wrote is a nice example or has a nice example, but it's a horrible example. You know, he quoted a 19 year old who said she didn't plan to get vaccinated because she feared it would affect her fertility, that she wanted to have children eventually. And she had seen something uh, that suggested that if she was vaccinated, that, you know, she would become infertile. And, you know, as you would well know, that is the oldest trope in the anti-vaccine book. And it's incredibly hard to uh, disprove because, you know, while there's no reason to believe these vaccines would have any impact on fertility, you, you're not going to be able, you don't have data to say that 15 years from now, somebody, you know, had no problems. We must have to demand better of the social media platforms, surely, at this point. I mean, I know they're trying harder, but I mean, stuff like this is really going to affect what kind of an uptake we get. 
I mean, I, I clearly agree about the need to demand better. And I would hope that the social media companies would um, take more responsibility for the role that they are playing kind of as a, a public health um, kind of landscape now in our lives, as well as clearly a, a marketplace for information. Uh, I also think that if they're not willing to do that, we have to put pressure on their major ad buyers you know, and take a page out of the stop, stop Hate for Profit campaign last summer and led by Color of Change and the Anti-Defamation League in which you know, major civil rights organizations in the United States just said you know, it was unacceptable that you kind of could monetize hate, hate against Black Americans, hate against Jewish Americans, hate against women. Um, and I think that we have to demand the same for you know, public health information. Um, and we know that deplatforming works. I mean, we certainly have seen the dramatic um, collapse of various strains of kind of you know, QAnon when big accounts have been removed. Um, we know that actually the kind of level of hate across all of Twitter um, truly you know, quantifiably decreased when Donald Trump's account was removed. Um, and so I think it's both about uh, trying to constrain the spread of uh, the misinformation, the toxic misinformation itself, as well as ensuring that there are real um, consequences for those who are um, generating and amplifying it. And right now there haven't been, um, you know, many, you know, of, of the dozen accounts that the, you know, um, Center for Countering Digital Hate pointed to, like they're all still active. Now they may not be active on every platform, but they're all still active, at least on some of the platforms. And that's just, I think, unconscionable, Helen, and unacceptable in the midst of a pandemic or any time. Right. So, so what kind of consequences are you thinking about? Are you deplatforming or? I think they should be, yeah, I do. I think they should be deplatformed. Um, I think that in the same way that if you, you know, threaten to kill someone, you, you're deplatformed. If you are spewing information that, you know, because of kind of what we know from science, because um, I do think it's important that we not, you know, continue to have both sideisms around science, evidence, and facts, you know, can be really, um, deadly, um, I think there have to be consequences for that. And we know this isn't academic. I mean, we know um, because we saw kind of what has happened, we've seen what has happened over the last few years where measles outbreaks can be tied you know, directly to major social media influencers, often targeting communities, sometimes coming in person you know, to those communities in which you know, childhood immunization rates then drop, kind of herd immunity breaks, measles outbreaks occur, you know, sometimes with really deadly consequences for kids. Um, and so I do think, you know, we have to um, just continue to push the social media platforms. And I know they feel like they've done more now than ever before. And while they have, um, doing more incrementally can't be a substitute for doing kind of absolutely what they need to do um, to protect to protect public health. And, you know, you know, while I know they often say, oh, like, it's just so hard, you know, for many years, Facebook allowed no images of a nipple, even if you were breastfeeding. Like their algorithms were so robust, seamless, um, that they constantly were scrubbing, you know, photographs and images to ensure that there was no kind of um, nipple ever shown because they didn't want to become a platform for pornography. Then after a lot of pressure from, 
new moms and others who wanted to share kind of the the joy and the incredibly natural act of breastfeeding on on Facebook, they were able to toggle their algorithm to still prevent kind of the type of nipple sharing that they didn't want kind of Facebook to be associated with or to be kind of a platform for and to um, accommodate kind of you know breastfeeding and other kind of body positivity um, images for for moms and non-moms alike. Uh, if they can figure out how to do all of that, Helen, they can figure out how to take down, you know, misinformation about uh, COVID itself, the COVID-19 vaccines, or, or vaccinations more broadly. So I think it's an active choice they're making to not do that. That's a fascinating example. I wish we had more time, but this has been great. Thanks so much for your time, Chelsea. And now back to Collision in Toronto. Thank you, Helen. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more about these topics firsthand, or you want to let us know what you want to hear, be sure to check us out on any of our social media accounts or visit websummit.com. That's websummit.com.